news, the beta reader matchup is now open for March. Are you looking for beta readers, some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line? Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre and time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 31st of March, with the matchup emails going out on the 1st of April. The only April Fools will be those who haven't signed up. For more information and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the Beta Reader Matchup tab, and please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. Hello, listeners. This is your co-host, Cece, and I'm so excited to tell you about my upcoming webinar, Writing Tension. Join me on Thursday, April 11th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time via Zoom to learn all about creating tension, conflict, and stakes in a story. This is a super popular writing webinar I offer, and it's filled with expert breakdowns, practical tips, formulas for cracking these elements, and real examples from novels that will help you dial up the tension in your story in actionable ways. And this year, I'm doing something extra. On the Monday after the webinar, we're having a live, cozy 90-minute Q&A session in which you'll get a chance to ask your questions about the webinar. That means we'll get to hang out for two days total. And if you can't attend the webinar, and or the cozy Q&A session, don't worry. They will be recorded and shared with everyone who's registered. There are limited spots for this webinar in this new format. So if you're interested, check out the link on my Instagram page and sign up. The handle is at agent. That's at C-E-C-E-L-Y-R-A agent. I hope to see you there. there and welcome to our show, The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. I'm Bianca Murray and I'm joined by Carly Waters and Cece Lira from PS Literary Agency. We'll be kicking off today's episode with our usual Books with Hooks segment, after which we'll go to today's guest. Hi everyone, welcome to another episode. As usual, we're going to begin with our Books with Hooks segment, which I am now going to belly flop straight into. Carly, would you like to begin with our first query letter? Absolutely. Hello, Bianca, Carly, and Cecilia. I love the podcast, and I'm excited by the opportunity to have my query letter considered for inclusion in your Books with Hook segment. I'll soon be seeking representation for my 70,000-word YA novel, The Ghosts and Our Reflections, so your feedback would be greatly appreciated. My manuscript is a dual POV paranormal novel that might interest fans of Amy Talkington's Live Forever, Meg Cruz, Giving Up the Ghost, or Laura Whitcomb's A Certain Slant of Light. For 16-year-old Isla Ramini, the appeal of moving to the Northern Indiana intentional community isn't its claim to be a sanctuary for those seeking human connection in the digital age. She doesn't care about the communal dinners or restrictions on technology. What sells Isla on the property is its history, built 100 years ago as a wellness center by an eccentric billionaire, then transformed into an artist retreat where legendary painters visited. Isla is a painter herself, after all, and living in a space once occupied by master artists can only improve her work. Besides, she and her father are still in the house where her mother succumbed to cancer, so a move might do them good. For 17-year-old Milo Selby, life in his hometown has become unbearable. 
After a year of tragedies, a life-changing car accident, becoming the ward of his volatile older brother, Milo was expelled from school and branded a bully because a comment he posted on his YouTube art channel was later associated with the suicide of a fellow student. He's fine with his brother's idea of moving to a strange tech-phobic community because all he wants is to get off the grid. When they meet, it's not lost on Isla or Milo how unlikely it is that this small community would accept two families with art-obsessed teenagers, each grieving the loss of parents. Both assume, though, it has something to do with the ghosts that haunt the property. When Isla first sees the lovely spectral woman wearing a men's dress shirt and tie, she mistakes her for a muse. After all, she's never painted as well as when the woman stands by her watching. Isla doesn't come to suspect the spirit's true nefarious nature until the woman takes possession of Milo's body, feeding off his pain and anger and twisting him to her will. Now separated physically and technologically from the world, Isla must identify the ghost and uncover the secret history of the property to save the lives of Milo herself and all the community's residents. My short fiction has appeared in New World Writing, Bull, Spectrum Literary Journal, Abstract Magazine, Litro Online, and Everyday Fiction, among other publications. I'm a winner of the Say Goodnight to Illiteracy competition. I hold an MFA in creative writing. Thank you for your time. Best wishes, M. Carly, thank you so much. Cece, why don't you tell us what you think of the query letter? So there's so much to love here, right? Like a ghost story, confined space, people of different backgrounds coming together. I love all that. I feel like those are all great ingredients for a story. In terms of the query letter, in terms of like giving feedback in the first paragraph, Dual POV is written D-U-E-L. And I didn't know if that was intentional. Like maybe they have a dual going on and that would be kind of cool. But I would also not recommend doing that because we might assume, like an agent might assume it's a typo, right? So unless, or I, if it is intentional, like specify that or just write it regular D-U-A-L. One note that I did have, like this is YA, I don't rep YA, but I appreciate YA and Isla seems like an adult. Like if you remove her age from this query letter, Everything that's said about her, not about Milo, but about her is sounds like an adult problem. There isn't a single thing that's specific to a 16 year old. She sounds so mature. It's, you know, with the painting and the muse and, and it, I don't know. I, I, I felt like it wasn't YA, but maybe this is just me being, being biased. Cause I read a lot of adult fiction. With Milo, it was a little different. Um, Like he got expelled from school. He got branded a bully. You know, there was a social media thing going on. Like those things read to me as being a little bit more kid-lit-like. Kid-like, really. I appreciate that the author in the last plot paragraph made it clear what's at stake and what the climax was, right? Like the sentence that starts with, Isla doesn't come to suspect the spirit's true nefarious nature. Like that that sentence from there on, we know what the climax is. We know um, what's at stake. And that's really, really good. I would have wanted a bit more specificity because specificity is key. So this doesn't sound like a generic ghost story, but honestly, very, very good. Like I, if I had to give the author notes, these are my notes, but I would be curious. I also really enjoyed the last paragraph. Carly, what do you think? All right. I also had that note about the dual versus dual, like... D-U-E-L. I thought I had a note like, is that intentional? But I agree with you, right? Like if we are stopping and questioning and stumbling, it's an issue. So either way, I would turn it back to dual with an A. Can I hop in there with the misunderstanding we had during my multi-POV and dual timelines class? Because of the way I pronounce things, about 10 minutes or 20 minutes into the class, somebody wrote on the chat, what is a dual P-O-V, J-E-W-E-L, because they thought that's what I was talking about. Dual, yeah. <laughs> Dual P-O-V. So we were like, well, that's a multifaceted P-O-V. Okay, carry on, Carly. 
Oh gosh, that's so funny. That's my favorite part about this podcast. We all like have our little quirks and idiosyncrasies um, with our dialects. I think this first paragraph needed a hook about how they come together. Because my big thing with dual and dual POV is that I want to know, like, why are we reading about these people, right? And, and what, what makes this a book and not two short stories or two novellas or whatnot, right? So I also thought the, the paranormal bit was buried, right? Like we don't really actually get to the paranormal until the bottom. So I think we need a hook about how they come together in this paranormal world at the top before we break out into the two separate description scenes. I definitely was confused about Isla's parental situation because it's just very confusing as to, like, it almost seems like she's moving herself to Indiana, you know, as Cece was saying, right? Like, is she an adult? Is she a teen? Like, we don't actually know. So I was just confused about that. And that also will lead into my, some of my notes for the pages later, but I'll get to that later. And then for Milo, like what a complicated and interesting situation. I mean, talk about, you know, tension and drama and just this whole conflict with technology and teens. Like, I just think there's a lot of really interesting stuff going on there. And then this third paragraph is again, trying to bring everybody together, but like, I'm a bit confused. Like, I think we need to cut the first line of the, of the paragraph. Cause it says when they meet, it's not lost on Isla or Milo, how unlikely it is that this small community would accept two families with art obsessed teenagers, each grieving the loss of parents. We know this, right? Like you just told us that in each of the paragraphs that they both are going through the situation. So I don't know who that line is for. So I would just cut all of that. And and really, yes, we're, we're bearing the paranormal here. So that's where I think we just need to kind of like, we could maybe even condense this paragraph by half, probably by taking out the hook, popping it at the top and just like cutting all the stuff that we already know. Anything that's duplicate, just like strike through, right? We don't want any repetition because you're already repeating two teens POVs in a query letter. So there is already a lot of duplicates, but all that to say, it is very, very interesting. You know, I, I love the, the paranormal hook. I think that paranormal is coming back. I will say that I think that we've had enough time and separation. I know agents got really burnt out on paranormal. The industry did as well, but I've heard, you know, witches are back. Ghosts really never went away. Like ghosts are back. And I've heard vampires might be coming back too. So there you go. Word on the street. Uh, yeah, because Colleen Hoover did Layla. I think that came out last year and that did phenomenally well again. So yeah. Okay. Cece, what were your thoughts on the opening pages? All right, let's do this. So there were a lot of details that I liked. So for example, right on page one, we're in Isla's POV and she's watching these birds and she's remembering her mom. And she's saying that her mom, her mom has passed away and she called them our fat squatters. There's these small details that I really, really like. The one thing that kept tripping me though, is that she seems like an adult. Everything about her voice, the fact that she would refer to the hospice counselor as the hospice counselor and not as Ms. Whoever, or give her a, a, give us a sharp visual or something like that's typically how teens remember people. The fact that she mentions that her summer break was blessedly here. And that just sounds like someone who wants to establish. I wanted to know specifically why, like I get that her mom is sick, right? Like I didn't even do a roundup for the listener, for the listener. Isla is, you know, she knows her mom haunts her, even if it's just in her head. She keeps seeing signs of her mom. Her dad brings, uh, calls her and she's painting. Her dad calls her and he tells her that they're moving to this community. He tells her about this community, right? Like, and she asks all these questions and obviously they're going to move there. We know this because of the query letter, but this is not a teenage girl. It's lines like, I would have considered it beneath me to copy someone else's work. Even her dialogue with her dad, like she was asking a lot of questions, but there was very little emotion. And 
teenage girls are all about emotion. It's all we feel. It's like it's a pressure cooker situation of hormones. I remember being one very, very well. And I, it's just, it just wasn't there for me. I thought that the dialogue could be compressed. It was too long. I also, I wanted more internal life. I got very little internal life from her. This is also where the emotion comes in. And it's all very dad centric. Like I know more about the dad than I know about the mom or Isla. Like that he was a savant, a legit genius app developer with poor social skills, hopeless at conversation. I, I don't know. Maybe maybe she's not the protagonist in the story. I would also urge the author to take a look at the writing on a line level. So for example, on page five, it wasn't strictly true that we didn't have people around us. We technically had granddad. Further along that same paragraph we get, didn't exactly get along. Like it's a lot of adverbs that are doing the same thing. You don't need all that. You can, you can cut back. It just gets distracting after a while. So again, I don't think her voice is a teenage, teenager's voice. I think her dialogue needs more internal life and more emotion. And it's your book, but I would have rather Isla know about the place before, right? Like I would have preferred it to be this dream she had. She was obsessed with it because all the painters went there. She had posters on her bedroom or something. But there was this obstacle. It can't just be the mom. Okay, it has to be something else, like her dad's job or something. That like they would never go there. And then her dad finally does this thing for her, right? And she's like, wait, what? Are you serious? Like, I feel like that would have made made it a stronger scene. Yeah, that's those are my notes. Carly, what do you think? Yeah, I'm just nodding along. I think making this more teen centric is really important. And I think you're hitting on some interesting things because teens worlds revolve around them, right? Like adults are just like moons to their planet, right? Like they are the world. So really, I mean, centering on the dad figure here um, and the more adult language, I think really detracts from that like teen energy. And another thing I think this that I wanted to talk about is I think everybody, you know, listening to this in terms of writers have heard this before, but like what a quiet novel is and what feels quiet and what feels loud and what, or what is the opposite of quiet and that kind of thing. So this is coming off extremely quiet because it's coming off very passive. We're not talking about, you know, any big decisions or big tense moments We're we're having a, a teen and a dad having a very casual, easy conversation. It's not like there's a time crunch. It's not like there's an energy here. It's like, oh, okay. My dad called me twice, but And even, you know, the dad said like, Isla, Isla, like there's no, you know, he said angrily or he said tersely or anything. It's just like, what is the tone of this interaction? I'm just not really feeling an energy here. And I know that this is going to be a dramatic book. And that's what worries me about this, because we're not starting in a place that is coming to us with a lot of energy. And we don't have to start with a paranormal. We don't have to start with a prologue. That's not what I'm asking. I'm saying, Where is the energy? Where is the vibe that this book is trying to project, especially when it's supposed to be spooky or you're pitching this in some sort of, you know, kind of like gothic way. We really need that energy and that creepiness to kind of come at us, even if it's not on the nose, right? There don't have to be boogeyman in the closet, but there has to be an energy. And I just, I'm worried that this is coming off quiet for me. And, and that's kind of my biggest concern because I don't think it's probably, I don't think it's necessarily a quiet book. I think we're starting in the wrong place. Maybe we should start with Milo because it seems like Milo maybe has a lot more drama like happening in the moment. We don't need a history of the property, right? That's not something that we need at this point. We need to figure out all of that later. What we need to know is how are we going to get to this property as quickly as possible? Because the drama doesn't happen at home. The drama happens on the property. So I'm I'm just asking for you know a little bit more energy and uh, and maybe just thinking about whether we're starting in the right place. Thanks. And just my two cents as a creative writing instructor is that 
if you are struggling very much with a character's voice in the first person, which is especially true of trying to capture a teenage voice, it might be easier for you to write her in the third person so that you as the author become the narrator. And so it's fine for most of that to be in your narrative voice, but then you really have to nail her dialogue, which is obviously much easier to nail than nailing the entire narrative and then, you know, get get into her head with the emotions and stuff more, but that might be easier for you to do. All right. So Cece, would you like to read the next query letter for us? Dear Ms. Lyra and Ms. Waters, shaving your legs for the first time is a rite of passage for most girls, but it could kill 12-year-old Sophie Flaherty. Or so it seems to her mother, Deirdre, who sees the bloody mix on her daughter's legs, hears the words, daddy's razor, and fears the disease taking her husband's life, the disease they don't talk about, will destroy Sophie as well. In a time which funeral homes refuse to embalm victims of the AIDS pandemic, Deirdre and Edward consider their decision to claim he's dying from cancer, not AIDS, to be an act of love. But that doesn't mean it won't haunt them and Sophie for the rest of their lives. Complete at just over 78,000 words, X is a literary fiction novel that likely has crossover appeal for book club readers. It traces the impact of Deirdre and Edward's lie on its tellers, as well as on Sophie, whose adult life retracts into a series of compulsions meant to protect her from being the next widow. Interwoven with the story of Edward's own father's suspicious death and his mother Lynette's role in it, the novel follows the Flaherty family's struggle for redemption despite generations of refusing to recognize the pain their intolerances, self-dramatizing imaginations, and obsession with appearances have on each other. Like Atonement by Ian McEwan, X is told from different perspectives spans six plus decades and demonstrates the devastating impact that our actions and sometimes more importantly our inactions can have on others. As a trigger warning, X include instances of historical homophobia and stigma against people with HIV AIDS and depicts a character who self-harms. I've published nonfiction works including a co-author chapter on the legal rights of people living with HIV AIDS. X has benefited from my participation in a masterclass led by Christine Desmet at the University of Wisconsin-Madison's Right by the Lake Seminar. The mentorship of Angela Rydell through the same institution's Pathway to Publication program and my attendance at numerous writing conferences, including the Writers Hotel 2020. I am currently participating in a private study program with the Writers Hotel co-founders, Scott Wolven and Shanna McNair and I'm actively working on my second novel. I would love to discuss representation with you. Thank you so much for your consideration. Sincerely, name. Thanks, Cece. Carly, what did you think? I had some mixed feelings about the structure. That first paragraph, like, wow, that really like punched me in the gut in terms of like really being in scene in a queer. We don't really see that too often starting like that. And this is a very dramatic, you know, moment with, you know, the the razor in the blood and kind of explaining the kind of stigmatization. So I think I, I would normally never, ever, ever suggest anybody starting in scene in a query like this, but it really did grab me. The only issue I have with this structure is that it makes it seem like Sophie is the main character. And then I get to the next paragraph and I'm like, oh, Sophie's not the main character. Like that made me like recheck everything that I just thought. So it, it did. The, so this is why I have mixed feelings because it does the job of really grabbing me, which a query is supposed to do, but it really confused me about who's the main character. So maybe this isn't the best start. 
One thing I found that we were missing from this was comps that were much more kind of in line with what was happening thematically with the book, because atonement is a good comp, I think, for this book. It's an exceptional, exceptional work of art. I mean, it's a phenomenal novel. I do think it could be a good comp here, but we're missing comps about the AIDS crisis, right? And so two, I wanted to point out two, actually two happen to be my favorite books of all time. So I would highly recommend everybody read them as well as comp them. But The Great Believers by Rebecca Mackay and uh, Tell the Wolves I'm Home. Both of those are just phenomenal books and I think would really be great comps for this. So I, w- I would, um, if you haven't, if this author hasn't read them, obviously read them before you comp them in your query, but I would recommend them. So here in this middle paragraph, I- I'm getting confused. And I think this echoes a lot of what we said last week on the podcast, when we talk about intergenerational issues and being vague about intergenerational trauma. Because again, I am super interested in intergenerational books. So I would request this. Like, ob- obviously, this is like exactly what I would want to read. And as you can tell, I'm, I'm swept up in it. But I have no idea what's going on. <laughs> I don't know who the main character is. I don't know what this redemption is about. I don't know... I don't really know anything that's going on. I would request it, but I have no idea what's going on. It's told from different perspectives, spans six decades, demonstrates the devastating impact of our actions. Like everything about this is totally up my alley, but I don't know what's going on. So I think I would just want to know a little bit more pointedly what is happening in the present, right? A lot of this intergenerational trauma stuff is great and, and we're, we're going to cover some decades. Great. But what's going on in the present? I do like sweeping novels, but we have to be about what's happening in the moment. But yeah, I mean, you hooked me. You did a great job. Thanks, Carly. Cece, what were your thoughts on that? I echo Carly's words. I was also really grabbed by the first paragraph. I was like, oh my gosh, because that is a powerful opener. But then when I understood, or at least I think I understood correctly, that this is not going to be told from Sophie's POV. This is not Sophie's story. She's not the main protagonist, I guess. Then I was like, wait, hold on. And so I am against this first paragraph. Here's why. Yes, it hooked like two agents, right? Like two out of two. But it also frustrated me, speaking just for myself. So I I don't think that you should you want to frustrate someone. I think that you should start with, you know, maybe write. Here's here's like my tip for you. And this is going to be super easy, she said sarcastically. Write a paragraph that's just as grabby, but not about Sophie. So that's your job, uh, writer. Do that. I love intergenerational stories. I think it's so interesting. There's so much potential there. Um, you know, I just finished Haven Point and it has nothing to do with the AIDS crisis, but it has everything to do with like how intergenerational trauma plays a role in our present, right? Ask Again, yes. These are all books that I love. I do think though, like books that talk about like we repeat what we don't repair. I do think though that we need more specificity. So yes to everything that Carly said. I very much agree. Thanks, Cece. Okay, Carly, would you give us a bit of an understanding of what's in those opening pages and then Mm -hmm. your thoughts on it? Yeah, so we have chapter one and chapter two. So they're both quite short. So chapter one, we're figuring out this is the mother character. We're in 1989. There's a timestamp, right? The mother is kind of watching her son pass And then quickly, we're jumping to chapter two. Both of these are only a couple pages long. We're getting to Edward in 1986. So we're going back into the past here. This is the man who is dying of AIDS. We're going back. And it starts with a consensual gay sex scene, basically. So those are kind of our two entry points into this novel. So I didn't like opening with Lynette, and I will tell you why. This really kind of, even though it's called chapter one, to me, it feels like a prologue because we do not have the context for why we're seeing the scene we're seeing, right? 
unfortunately, nothing here is new in terms of perception, in terms of pop culture and books of, again, unfortunately, watching a man pass of AIDS, right? I'm not, I don't feel like I'm learning anything new in this scene. And so what I would want to know is what is special about this scene and in, in terms of this context, in terms of relationship this mother and son have, because that's what's interesting to me. And I don't have any context because I don't know about the relationship. Are these two even close? I get the sense of this line. It says he didn't deserve this no matter what he said he was, right? There's a lot of misconception about, you know, AIDS and the stigma and everything like that, right? And, and uh, being gay and, and all of that, right? So I don't know anything about the relationship between these two people. I wanted to cry. Like this isn't a devastating scene. A mother should not watch a child pass, right? That's against, you know, the quote unquote laws of nature. And I wanted to feel a huge range of emotion. I wanted to be gutted. I wanted to cry. You know, I wanted to feel some feelings. And unfortunately, I didn't feel anything. It's a beautifully written chapter, but I'm not feeling anything because I don't know these people yet. In order for me to feel attached to these people, I kind of need to know why we are feeling this. So I think we need a new opening. That said, I don't think chapter two is the opening, which is why I think that this author opened with chapter one. Chapter two is Edward going coming in from the suburbs into New York City to have what possibly might be his first gay sex experience. It's consensual and everything like that. It's just like in terms of a scene, in terms of opening a novel with it, it's just a lot, you know, it's a lot to handle. So I would say this probably isn't the opening either. Those are kind of my my main notes. I mean, the actual like sexual interaction is extremely well written. Extremely well written. You know, there's this line, a couple lines here. One of one of the lines I really liked was there's going to be a, a financial transaction for the sex act. And it and, he, and the the man paying for the sex says, Thank God he had the smaller bill. Asking for change would have been more than he could handle. Like, holy shit, that is just like makes you smile, makes you be like, oh my God, like so human, right? To be like, I'm paying for sex for the first time with a man. And do I ask for change? Like, wow, wow, wow. That is just knocked my socks off. In terms of the tension, right? He's like, so the man who is offering the sex says the man pushed Edward inside and closed the door. $10 for a hand job, 30 for head, 50 for anal. The man smiles. And it it just felt like so much tension in this moment of him having to decide, like, it's really a coming of age story of a gay man. And in terms of like, you know, putting himself in this situation and and coming of age in this way. So I I really felt like that scene was wonderfully written. I just don't think it's the opening of a novel. So those are my notes. I mean, really extremely talented author here. Can I ask a question before we move on to Cece is, and it's, you know, it's a recurring question is, so Rebecca Mackay got a lot of acclaim for The Great Believers, but then there was also a lot of criticism that this book was written about gay men from a straight woman's perspective. Same happened with Tanya Yangira's A Little Life. So what are your thoughts on this, you know, in terms of woman writing from a gay man's perspective? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I think it's an excellent question and one that will always come across my mind just as it did for you, right? I always think about, you know, who has the right to tell the story? You know, how should a story be written? Is it done sensitively and, and tastefully and authentically? And has it had sensitivity readers, right? Like these would be the types of conversations I'd be having with somebody. I always come back to, and I've talked about this before on the podcast, was Alexander Chi's essay in Vulture. And he asks three questions. So the article is called How to Unlearn Everything. When it comes to writing the quote unquote other, what questions are we not asking? And and the first question is, why do you want to write from this character's point of view? 
the next question is, do you read writers from this community currently? And the third question is, why do you want to tell this story? And there's a lot more context to the article and, and I highly recommend everybody read it. It's from 2019, but I, I have a bookmark and I send it to people all the time because to me, it really it, it covers and, and tackles a lot of the, the politics and the identity politics of who gets to write what and, and how. I do believe that talented writers can write the quote unquote other. I, I do believe that, right? Authors who have immense talent and are very empathic people and can do it sen sensitively in a very talented way can, can do it. I do believe that, but not without criticism, right? Not without the questioning. And all of those questions are valid, but it doesn't take away from how, how great the book is and, and if talented writers can write. Thank you. Right. Cece, what did you think of it? I echo Carly's notes on like, we're not starting in the right place. So when I, first of all, thank you for the timestamp. I know Carly has already thanked you, but thank you for me too. Timestamps are wonderful. Every writer out there, please just use timestamps. When I saw Lynette's chapter, I was like, yes, like I get how this is emotional. It's a mom losing her son. Like who wouldn't, who wouldn't relate to this? But, but it doesn't make me feel curious. And even though I suspect the author wanted us to feel curious with certain lines, lines like, for example, I, Lynette is speaking, I whispered to you, just like I'm whispering now, I said, my son, you will not become your father. It hadn't been the vow he needed for her to make, though she couldn't have known it. There are seeds that are being planted questions that we're meant to ask, to be asking, and, and theories that we're probably meant to be forming, but it's not a good starting point. Keep this chapter. I'm not saying you won't use it, but I don't think it's the entry point into this building. And then with Edward's chapter, I also highlighted the tip, not the tip, sorry, because I, I had a question, like, when you tip him, like, is tip not expected? Like, I have all sorts of questions, right? But the, the question about change, I was like, oh, my gosh, I totally get that. How huh? would be so anxiety inducing to ask for change? Like, who would do that? There were so many great details, right? Like details about the, his leather wallet, like in the fact that, you know, his daughters had given him the wallet last Father's Day and he ignores their faces. Obviously the faces from the pictures, right? Like when you open someone's wallet, especially back then, you usually had pictures. So I, I really, really, really loved the scene. It's very well written. I still don't think it's the right place to start. Oh, and I have a question about the financial transaction because the man asks top or bottom, wouldn't that change the price? Like just saying, like, I think that would change the price. So I don't know, but I might, my, my, my instincts tell me it would. So that's, that was my very specific transactional question, but I still don't think we're starting in the right place. And this is a personal view. So this is a CC view. Do not make any changes unless you agree, but I'm against starting stories with surrender. And that's what this is. He is surrendering to desire. He's surrendering to a craving that he's kept bottled up for so long. It's it, it's taboo because of the age that we are in, right? This is the late 80s. It's sexy. It's it's filled with craving and desire and longing and passion. And, and these are interesting things. I don't think they're opening scene material because surrender isn't curiosity inducing from the story forward perspective, right? Like I'm not, I finished reading the scene and I finished reading a great short story. A great short story. I'm not going, oh my God, what's going to happen next, right? Like you want an opening scene that has buildup, an opening scene that has tension, that creates stress and strain, not an opening scene with their surrender. So for example, and this is not what the story is, but if at the end of this great scene, there had been a knock on the door and his wife were there, 
that would have made me wonder what the heck was going to happen next. Or if he left the bathroom stall and he ran into his boss, right? And there had been a mention or two woven in inner life that his boss was super conservative. I don't know. Again, this is not what this book is. I'm not suggesting doing any of these things, but I'm telling you things that would have made me go, oh my God, what's going to happen next? So if you want to start with surrender, add something, a seg that's going to make me go, oh gosh, I wonder what will happen in chapter two. That is very important in a novel. A novel is not a short story. You're not supposed to make me feel completely satisfied by the end of chapter one. And this is how I felt when I read this. I was like, that was a great story. The other thing I wanted to add to that was about the consequences, right? Because this kind of it kind of goes back to my earlier notes about we're not learning anything new, right? You're not adding to our understanding. A lot of this is things that we have gleaned from pop culture or family stories or friend stories at the time, right? So we're not like the, the consequences are does he get AIDS from this transaction as opposed to I left my wife's work Christmas party early to come here because we were already in the city, right? Or like that, that like, what, is, what are the repercussions for his marriage, his job? Like, these are the things that CeCe's getting at, right? Like, what are the consequences of this? That's the kind of stuff that we, that we haven't got. Wonderful. Thank you. Right. We'll now go into our third query letter, which I will read. Dear Collie and Cecilia. Warm blood at 72,000 words is a historical fantasy with feminist undercurrents. Set in Victorian London, this tale of family, revenge, social expectations, and embittered vampires will appeal to readers of magical realism in the style of Caroline Lee, The Glass Woman, Sarah Penner, The Lost Apothecary, and Sarah Perry Melmoth. Spinster in the making, Grace Sadler will carry her crime to the grave. When her estranged father dies on the eve of his return, Grace's frugal existence on the Cornish coast comes to an abrupt end. Now, living in London with her overbearing aunt, Grace turns her plight into an opportunity and rekindles her artistic ambitions. Martin Sadler dreams of adventures in the new world. When his recklessness ruins his sister's prospects, Martin plans a new fail-proof, get-rich-quick scheme. He will sell the long-lost verses of the infamous romantic Pietro Gentilecci to the highest bidder. There's only one problem. The poems are buried with Gentilecci's erstwhile muse, Arcangela Rossini. Undeterred by trivial details, Martin enlists the help of his trusted friends, George and Edward, only to disappear the night of the robbery. United by their common goal to find out what happened to Martin, Grace and George gravitate towards each other. Only that George knows more than he lets on, Grace's secret threatens to slip out and none of them pay heed to the son of us gentleman who's pulling everyone's strings. I'm a bookstore manager from Romania. Together with my partner, our daughter and two nefarious felines, I live a stone's throw away from Dracula's fake castle in the heart of Transylvania. Thanks for your consideration. Jules. Jules, there's just one thing I want to say before I hand across to Collie and Cece is that as soon as I read Grace Sadler, I thought of Grace Adler from Will and Grace and then pictured her as this throughout. So so maybe tweak those, those last names there a bit. Okay. Cece, would you like to begin with your thoughts on the query letter? Grace Adler. I love it. Okay. Someone on Twitter, and I wish I could remember who, it's one of our loyal followers, said that we should have a drinking game where every time someone says, I'm confused, someone takes a sip. Well, get your coffees or your cocktails or your mocktails or whatever you're drinking because I was confused. Okay, so I don't understand the first two sentences of the first plot paragraph, like Spinster in the Making, Grace Sadler, and then When Her Estranged Father. I don't get how they're connected. Like, I have no idea. 
I also don't get how old Grace is and her age matters. It makes all the difference, right? Like I understand that age meant something different back in whenever, because I also don't know when we are. So I was confused about that too. I know we're mentioning like the Americas as the new world. So I can take a guess, but still it's like a century gap guess. So I also did not know that Martin was her brother until I read the pages. This is not clear. I understand that in Martin's paragraph, there's a mention of his sister and they share the same last name. But that's a stretch. Remember, you're dealing with over-caffeinated agents who read 50 queries at a time. Don't do this to us. You know, be nice to our brains. Like on the third plot paragraph, the one that starts with united by their common goal, I was like, so what about like Grace and George gravitate towards each other? I'm like, what about Edward? Is Edward just standing there? Like, I don't like, is he not essential? Like, is this story about Grace and George? Like, if if so, then why all the real estate on Martin? And then when we got to the last sentence, like no one is paying heed to the son of verse gentleman. I'm like, oh yeah, vampires. In the first paragraph, they promised me vampires. I forgot about the vampires. So I was very confused. Very, very confused. I, I love the nefarious feline comment. Love cats. I am not a dog person or a cat person. I'm an animal person. So, you know, talk to me about all your, your furry babies. But this, to me, I don't understand what's going on. And I have lovely things to say about the pages. So you are not doing yourself any favors with this query letter because your pages are much, much better. Holly, how many shots have you had uh, in being confused? Oh, man, I don't know if we have enough time for that. I think we need to make sure we drop the episode at like, I don't know, happy hour Eastern time or something like that. So we can get our get our shots in. I wanted to love that. Like, I wanted to love this query, right? Like, there, as Cece said, there's so much that's happening here. It's really interesting. I just couldn't fall head over heels for, for some of the reasons that Cece had mentioned, right? So how many POVs is this? What year in Victorian London are we in? What is the crime? Are they rich? Are they poor? Classism has a lot to do with things here, and I just don't think we're tackling the classism. One of the things I'm confused in regarding the money is that it says, Grace's frugal existence. And then it says on the Cornish coast comes to an abrupt end. Is it the frugal existence that comes to an end or is it the Cornish coast that comes to an end? Because I almost thought it was both. I, I was like, oh, is she, did she fall into money now? That was kind of what I was confused about. So I think we need to really address the classism head on in terms of their social standing because it matters a lot in Victorian time periods. Grace's paragraph reads a lot like synopsis, so I would try and just like massage that a little bit so it doesn't kind of read so staccato. Martin's section, I had a note saying like, well, what does this have to do with Grace, right? Because like, how are these two people interacting? My big thing about multiple POVs and multiple characters is what brings them together, right? So, and at the bottom, it says united by their common goal to find out what happened to Martin, right? And you're you're burying that, that common goal. So I want to know at the top with the hook, what is bringing them all together? I'm assuming, again, making assumptions here that she killed her dad or had something to do with the death of her father. That's my, that's my guess, my clue. But all of that is, is very interesting, but I just don't think this query is, is doing itself justice, right? So we are being harsh on you because we know this is better. <laughs> we know this is better than it's leading on to be. And uh, and we really just want you to find success with this because as we said, the pages are great. So um, hopefully you can you can take these notes and, and rework it because we see tons and tons of promise here. Thanks, Kali. Cece, what were your thoughts on the actual pages? Can you give us a bit of an overview of what happens? Yes. Um, so we are at a funeral 
This is told from Grace's point of view. The first two lines are great. It's Grace promised herself she wouldn't cry. Some people didn't deserve tears. It's the funeral of her father. We know based on inner life that her brother is there and that he's sad. And she assumes that he is sad because he is grieving the father he'd only met for the first time a week ago. So that was very interesting. There's, we see a man sitting at a bench at a distance and Grace is worried that he is the police coming for her because she is, has obviously done something wrong and she's concerned that someone has found out about it. We don't know what that something is. And at the end, there's a figure called Aunt Lydia, which totally made me think of Handmaid's Tale. But Aunt Lydia tells Grace you were lucky because you had witnesses. Otherwise, there would have been an inquest. Your father died on the eve of his return. So that's quite the coincidence, right? So that's just an overview of what happens. I always say that grief is not an act of emotion. It does not make me feel curious. I do not recommend starting with grief. Well, this writer has just proved me wrong. This is great. I am very curious. This is an active emotion situation funeral because it's not your run-of-the-mill grief, right? Like she's not just there feeling sad for her father. She's actually concerned the police is after her, which is just cool, right? Like I, I want characters like this. I want protagonists like this. It's very intriguing. Panic nodded her innards. Three years later, had someone finally puzzled her out? But how or who? Like very interesting. The man apparently looks like an escaped madman and he's carrying an umbrella, even though it's not raining. So, you know, this is interesting, interesting stuff. There's also a lot of emotion. So for example, her brother standing between his friends, Edward and George, like a street urchin caught between an uppity sergeant and the well-meaning constable. It's just great writing, great stuff, right? Like the writer, I'm telling you, you did not do yourself any favors with that query letter. I had questions. And so one of the questions I had, Perhaps what Martin grieved was not the death of a father he'd only met for the first time a week ago, but the death of hope. A, beautiful sentence. B, you said he'd only met a week ago. Does that mean that you, Grace, not you, the author, had met him before, the father? If not, make it they'd only met, right? If so, keep it this way. And I'm just super curious and I love it. I love that she doesn't want to cry. I love that the priest is being kind of, you know, kind of invasive and she's sort of like trying to dodge his questions. I love what he said about men make mistakes, Miss Grace. I kept thinking to myself, yep, men can, women can, right? Like, especially back then. I had one question, which is probably just me getting confused by the English language, but I'm just going to say it. You say the eve of his return. To me, that makes me think of the day before, but that can't be it. it I'm assuming you mean eve like evening. Maybe that's how people used eve back then. I don't know, but I don't get it. Like her father can't have died on the eve of his return, meaning the day before the return, because he has returned. So I would I would clarify that because I think people think of Eve like Christmas Eve, like the day before. So I think it sounds confusing. Also, the penultimate paragraph, the one that starts with she looked at Martin, who kept his head down. Aunt Lydia is talking, I think. And I watched Downton Abbey. So this is my expert opinion on someone who I think would say, I don't think she would say you must go to London for the best medical care. I think she would say one must go to London for the best medical care. That is 100% how people on Downtown Abbey talk. So I think that, you know, this makes me an expert and I should be able to give you advice based on that. So yeah, this is a great, great job. I'm curious. I would have kept on reading. You did a wonderful, wonderful job. Carly, what were your thoughts? 
Yeah. One of my main notes is actually what CC was just talking about is that I don't think we nailed the Victorian voice here. And because this writer is so talented, I'm almost wondering if this is intentional and we're going to be doing some time slipping back and forth because this felt very modern. Another example is that the main character, Grace says, police inspectors like would they really have called people police inspectors in Victorian England like I don't think they would there's just little things like that in terms of the dialogue again feeling modern that I'm very unsure that we're actually in Victorian time period so I do think we need the time stamp and if I'm reading too much into this and you know we're not doing time slipping or anything like that meaning like time travel back and forth I really think the author needs to kind of really dig deep and make sure that like we're really hitting every beat in terms of research about Victorian time periods, because people who read historical fiction will be absolute sharks on you about this type of stuff. Right. So we, we also have to be sharks at you, on you at this stage. So really everything from dialogue to, are they called police, right? Like research, 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 binging Downton Abbey, if that's what it takes, right. It's research. I told it, it's research, it's research. So really just, I, I'm not convinced. I'm not convinced we're in Victorian. Victorian times. All that to say, I am fascinated by this sneaky, sneaky grace and and her mishaps and her crimes and her, you know, I don't know. I, I think she's, I think she's sneaky and I like sneaky women in Victorian time period because it suggests, as you said in your, in your pitch that this is, has feminist undercurrents. I, I'm seeing this, right? I'm seeing this woman going against the grain here. My main concern is really just are we actually portraying the time period as it should be? You know, a line that I highlighted that I really liked was at the funeral under a leafless oak tree, right? Somebody could have said, oh, it's fall, late fall. It's almost winter or the snow is falling, but they said under a leafless oak tree, right? That says so much in such few words, right? So I know we're working with a talented author here. I, I know there's immense talent here. So I just kind of want to want to help you bring this to the next level because I think this is very, very interesting. Bring on the vampires. And a tip there is to just, when you're writing this kind of time period and you're going for this kind of voice, immerse yourself in reading those kinds of books. Listen to those stories that are told in, you know, audiobooks that are done that way. It really becomes a hugely immersive experience so that the voice comes to you so much more naturally without the, the modern day voice slipping in there as well. All right. Thanks, Carly and Cece. My youngest son starts kindergarten this year. I can't believe it. One of the tricky things, though, about my kids being in French immersion school and me not having French as a language myself is worrying about how we're going to assist with homework as they get bigger. They're young now, but I see it coming. We are very lucky, though, to live in Ottawa, which is a bilingual city of a million people. And we have bilingual friends and francophone friends. So it's going to be really easy for our kids to pick it up at a young age through school and sports activities. But me, on the other hand, growing up where French class wasn't taken too seriously and we goofed off. I am so sorry, Madame Corrigan. We're going to have to make up the difference. And that is where Rosetta Stone comes in as the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. And it truly immerses you in the language you want to learn. Immersion is a proven way to learn a language. Instead of memorizing and drilling vocabulary words, you learn by matching audio from native speakers to visuals, reading stories, participating in dialogues, and other practical language skills to fast track your ability to communicate fluently. There are no English translations in the product. You're getting trained to listen, speak, read, write, and think in your new language. Rosetta Stone users especially love the speech recognition feature. As you practice speaking, Rosetta Stone uses advanced voice recognition technology to match your audio to audio from native speakers, and then gives you feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. So you can really hone those pronunciations, which we know is key to sounding fluent. 
It offers 25 languages from Spanish, French, Italian, German, Chinese, Korean, Japanese, even Dutch, Arabic, and Polish. This is the best language program to get because they've been the expert for 30 years and used by millions, thousands of companies and government organizations use Rosetta Stone to support language learning training online. Of all the apps, it is the best at speech recognition technology. So it compares your sound waves to those of native speakers. Rosetta Stone has a patented speech recognition engine called True Accent built into the program. So as you practice speaking, you're gonna get your feedback on how well you're pronouncing words, other language apps use speech recognition to detect what you said, but Rosetta Stone tells you how well you said it compared to native speakers. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Think about the cost of a one-month language course. Think about the cost of a one-hour private tutoring session. But with Rosetta Stone, you enjoy a lifetime membership and accessibility on desktop or app. And right now we have a special offer for you guys that is 50% off. That is lifetime access to 25 language courses on Rosetta Stone for 50% off, a complete steal. Do not put off learning that language. There is no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the shit no one tells you about writing listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That's visit rosettastone.com slash today. 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today today. Calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on. Before we go to today's guest, I just want to remind you about courses that we've got coming up. On the 21st of September at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, Carly will be teaching a class called Self-Editing Your Novel Into a Success. In today's competitive publishing environment, authors need to come to the table with a completely polished manuscript. This is where many writers fail to get representation. Carly's insider industry tips and self-editing checklist will help writers get their formatting to a professional standard, use critical feedback, make sure their novel starts at the right place and more. If you're interested in signing up for that, go to Carly's Instagram page and you will find the link there. And then on the 20th of October from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern Time, I'll be teaching a course called Making Your Writing Shine at a Line Level. The listeners to the podcast will know that I'm often speaking about little things that can be done on a sentence by sentence level that'll just elevate the writing and make it shine. This is also something that you will have a checklist for that's completely practical that you will walk away and immediately be able to start revising your work on a sentence level to be able to elevate that. If you're interested in that, go to my website, biancamaray.com and look under the courses tab on the menu. Right, let's go to today's guest. 
Today's guest is the author of Owls Are the Streets and The Year of the Runaways, which was shortlisted for the Man Booker Prize and the Dylan Thomas Prize and was awarded a European Union Prize for Literature. In 2013, he was named one of Granter's 20 Best of Young British Novelists of the Decade. He lives in Sheffield, England with his family. It's my pleasure to welcome Sunjiv Sohota, author of China Room. Welcome, Sunjeev. It's so wonderful to get to chat to you today. What an absolute honor. I did a bit of a deep dive into some old interviews that you gave. And the one thing that I saw made me so ridiculously excited because it resonated with my process. And uh, you said you like to write alone in a room with no natural light, silence and semi-darkness. Could you tell us about that? It feels a bit like being a vampire and you're the only other writer I know who likes to write this way. Yeah, it sounds quite grim when it's put in such stark terms. Yeah, I did because I used to work in my a basement and I find I needed that that cave-like silence to actually to get to where I needed to with my writing. Actually, that was all kind of before I had children. Since the children have come along and the basement's kind of been taken over by them, I've had to adapt my, my writing environment. So I do now allow a natural light. Um, I do now, so I'm now in a room where there is some natural light, but the, the silence and the quiet and the empty stretch of a day, I think I need, though I don't, I, I'll rarely get a full day, I, but I, I do need three or four hours where I know I'm not going to be interrupted, where I know there isn't going to be any any other commitments made of me, where I can just sit quietly in, in solitude and and write. So those aspects remain remain true. I think I need that silence or just tap into that bit of me, that bit of my mind that I need to tap into to, to write. Yeah, absolutely. But but what I found really interesting there was the no natural light, because I know a lot of writers need silence, although many, many writers can write in cafes or they can write while listening to music. And that blows my mind. I don't know how the hell they manage to mm-hmm. concentrate then. But the, the semi-darkness, you know, there's something I write in this den and it's, you know, I've got my fake light or whatever, but I hate natural harsh light while I'm busy writing. And I don't know if it's the reflection of the screen or what it is, but I thrilled to think of you sitting in this dark little cave, typing away, making these masterpieces. So in terms of your writing process, so you've just said you get three to four hours in a day. Do you have like set writing times or is there times that, you know, you do you just write any three or four hours a day? How does that work for you? No, it's it's quite routine. So I'll kids will be I've got three young children. I'll drop them off to school or nursery. I'll get back by about, you know. 10 past nine in the morning. By the time I've kind of loaded the dishwasher with the breakfast stuff and kind of got my act together, I'll head up, um, open up my laptop by about you know, 10 o'clock, quarter to 10, 10 o'clock, and I'll write through till about two o'clock, with probably a mini break for lunch or something, like a, a quick sandwich. And then at two o'clock, it's time to start getting ready to pick the kids up from school and, and do all that kind of stuff. So those, no, those, it's usually 10 till two, four or five days, four or five days a week. It's quite, it's, and it's quite good just to have that, that established kind of like um, almost mechanical routine. It kind of, uh, it helps me just to fix my mind in the right place, I think. Yeah. And I think the beginner writers talk about waiting for the muse to strike, but I feel like we summon the muse when we sit down, bum in the chair every day. And the muse knows that's the time it needs to arrive to do the work with us. So I think getting into a routine definitely helps a lot. 
You've said in other interviews that you wait until an idea has accumulated a certain amount of critical mass in your head, and then you start at the beginning and keep going until things fall apart. Now, uh, emerging writers are constantly told that they need to plot, that they need to plan everything, that they need to know it up front and work out the structure, etc. But it sounds like that's not something you do. Could you tell us a bit about that process? Um, well, a part of that kind of accumulating a certain amount of just critical mass in my head will be kind of thinking about structure. I do think about structure hard, and I think structure is the one thing I'll think. I mean, I'll, I'll try to make sure I've got the structure as right or you know the frame of the book as right before I'll start writing because that's the one thing once you're into it if that's wrong you have to start at the, I, I have to go back to the beginning and start again other things character language style you can change it you know you can change in a revision but structure structure is wrong you know if it's the wrong point of view if it's the wrong tense or if it's the wrong sort you know a frame of you know if you are if you're writing a third person you realize you should be writing an epistolary you know story it's all got to change so I will spend a lot of time thinking about structure and that's where a lot of that time goes but I do I, I even when I'm not physically writing the novel I'll still be turning up at 10 o'clock at my desk with my laptop even if I don't write anything for those three or four hours I think I'm, I'm just sat there and as you'll know a lot of it is just staring at it's, it's just staring into space kind of thing but that that's when I think the deep thinking is is happening and even if by the end of this four 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 hours all I've got to show is quite an elaborate geometric doodle down the side of my page there's still something happening all the way time and so when kind of like the, the idea does start to become less less abstract in my head and more textual and I can just see it better I feel I'm just I'm just ready to start putting the words on the page I it's the an analogy might be like I'm just walking through for for those months and perhaps sometimes a year or two that I'm just thinking and trying to work out the structure and trying to work out what the story is and start perhaps even starting and getting it wrong and starting again it's like walking in a darkened forest and I'll be finding going down all these different paths and sometimes retra retracing my steps and, re and retreading my my steps but I'm always just looking for that for that clearing where the revelation will it sounds a bit mystical but like that but where a certain amount of like things will become of clear to me that weren't clear previously and I don't think I can get to that point without going through those months of just sitting there in solitude with with the book. I don't, I mean, I don't go, I don't write for any other publications. I don't do any, I don't, I'm not a critic. I don't write reviews. I don't, I'm not active on any social media because I guess that just, that works for me. For other writers, they need that kind of, that nourishment that that public facing interaction gives them. But for me, being alone with, alone and thinking about the work is kind of key to how I get to see what it is I want to try to write. Yeah. And I think writing is one of the only sort of pursuits or professions where so much of our work gets done when it looks like we're doing absolutely nothing. Mm. You know, that sitting, staring at the blanks page or staring into space, that's when so much of the magic happens. And I think that's why so many of our listeners struggle to carve out the time for themselves because people in their family look at them and go, but you're doing nothing. You're yeah. not actually working, but it really is working. I think you said in an interview as well that, and this was a few years ago, that you run a lot, that you jog, but you said that when you run, that's when you're most present in the moment, which I found fascinating because I walk a lot, but I cannot remember my walks from start to finish because I'm so busy thinking about the book during the walk. So is your running like the time to switch off from that? Probably, I think when I'm walking, I'm very much like you. When I'm walking, something like the pace of walking seems to facilitate you know, it seems to match that that thinking pace about that thinking part of um, your mind thinking about the novel. But when I'm running, it's almost like things happening too quick for me to actually even analyze 
anything about the novel and it kind of like running up on obliterates any um idea of me thinking about anything i can't all i'm doing is just i'm just running i'm just it's just me going through space in this moment in time in the, in this wooded usually wooded environment and i find that absolutely vital is when i feel most yeah just most present I wouldn't say most alive because i feel most alive when i'm one you know when i'm writing when the writing is well i feel intensely alive at those points as well when i'm running it does feel because i think i am quite an analytical when i'm writing it things do just get quite analytical and sometimes just can get quite dark and running kind of just takes me away from that and i, I need that as a way of just recharging for i can get back to my desk as well i find it helps yeah i think as writers we spend so much time in our heads that we need that kind of off switch to get away yeah. from that as well so i think uh, that's something that i need to find i've tried meditation doesn't work i overthink it and and i'm not athletic enough for the running but i'm still in pursuit of of that activity you said if things start to fall apart in your writing you know you'll take a break try and work out what went wrong and then start again and you said you dogged which helps and the novel seemed to have an incentive built into them refusing to reveal to you what it is you're trying to say until you actually reach the end could you tell us yeah. about like that part of your process yeah i've realized that it seems to me that part of my writing process is that things will fall apart two or three times during the writing of a novel and fall apart to a degree where I can't, it's not just a wobble, I can't write it, just I can't kind of make it okay by just writing through it. I need to actually just stop, start again. And it's always a kind of a disturbing and troubling time because it's, you know, it has been 60,000 words that I've just had to set aside. And, you know, you, you try to give it CPI, try to bring it back to life, but it's not going to work. And you have to just accept that it's gone, that it's dead. Obviously, it's not in, it's not in vain. Those things will always help and uh, help the next draft. And then I'll just go into that, again, that solitary mode, trying to work out what went wrong, why did it happen, how, you know, what, what, what structurally or, you know, what, what was it that actually made that, that killed the thing off? And then I'll, I'll kind of hopefully feel armed, sufficiently armed to start to start again and is that that dogged grim persistence of just not giving in i think i do have that kind of that that discipline and that kind of um determination where i will keep and I, even even when i'm trying to work what's going on, i'm still just every day just turning up turning up at the page saying okay are you going to give me anything like what what do you know what how's, how's this going to work how am i going to get through how am i going to put some marks on the page and it's that kind of that doggedness and that determination is i think one of the I think much more than talent, much more than anything else, the thing that I think a writer, novice most needs is just desire, that desire to actually write the thing. And if you've got that, that'll, that's 90% of the battle, I think. I think you said that with China Room, you had um, a third occasion where things sort of fell apart. And you said it was nine months before you felt sufficiently mm -hmm. armed to start from the beginning again. So when you come back to the beginning, do you scrap absolutely everything you've written up to that point and start like, blank page page one or is it more of a case of like having a jigsaw puzzle and saying okay these are the parts of what i've written that i feel like i can slot into place but this needs to go it's blank it starts again from page one i mean there'll be bits that i'll remember or bits that i want to keep but i never go back and cut and paste and i never go back to a previous draft and copy a bit and then bring it back in. i always think if it's if it's good enough and if it's if it's lodged inside me enough it'll, it'll just i'll remember it and it'll it'll be it'll be in the new draft but I, that's that's quite a, it's not a rule because it never occurs to me to go back and copy i always think that's gone i'm starting again here we go so it is it's, it is obviously it's not a total blank slate because i've got this previous draft to draw on if i want to without actually going 
directly back to them. But it is, in, in, in the most crucial senses, it is a blank slate. And I think I need that. I can't think that I'm just trying to fudge something up again from, from previous efforts. It is that, okay, I'm starting again. Let's hope this time I get to the end, really, kind of thing. It seems to be a male author approach, which I find interesting because I recently interviewed Jeffrey Deaver, who, of course, writes a completely different genre to you, totally different kind of writer. But he was saying, you know, the the ethical and the moral thing to do as a writer is to scrap everything and, and come back to it again completely new, which, you know, um, most of the women I interview say they'll. I don't know, maybe as women, we're more sentimental about our writing. And so we kind of hug these bits close to our chest and we don't want to let them go. But it's it's an interesting, different kind of approach. No, most, I think mostly when it goes wrong for me, it's a structural thing that's fallen apart. It's nothing to do with character or thing. It's actually something quite fundamental that is wrong. If it was anything else, I, I'd be able to kind of um, work my way through it and get to the end and correct it later. It's just something as, as, as fundamental as this if I'm writing from the wrong character's point of view, or I'm writing from, you know, you know, something very essential is wrong. So, which is why, so starting, I'm trying to, so trying to use previous efforts or trying to use it, it just wouldn't really, I don't think it would help me. I think anything would just hinder me from actually trying to make the corrections or make the things, correct the things that had gone wrong properly, I think. And it's so interesting that that kind of happens at the 60,000 word mark oh, yeah, because, yeah. you know, most emerging writers figure, okay, well, if I've got the beginning right, then that's that's fine and I'm good to go. But I mean, obviously you felt, you know, if you look at like the three act structure or whatever, 60,000 words is as you're going into your third act. So, mm-hmm. you know, for you, it's it's thinking, okay, I've, my first act's fine and going and, and the second act's so tricky because, you know, you've really got to keep the reader's attention and you need to keep the tension going and you need to keep that momentum going. And then as you go into the third act, you realize, oh, damn, there's mm. something very intrinsically wrong, which is something, you know, I, I don't think many beginner writers expect to happen. I think that that 60,000 word mark where I had to dump it, and that was with my first novel, actually. It's never been quite that severe since, I think, um, but with my first novel. And I remember that very clearly. I was writing it in a kind of a, in, in a stream of consciousness kind of way. I think I was trying to channel William Faulkner or something. I'm not quite sure what I was doing. I was only... <laughs> I was only in my 20s at that point. <laughs> and it just wasn't, and I got to that point, and I just thought, this just feels, it feels fake. You know, it just feels, doesn't feel, it feel and it, it's quite common with, I think, with beginning writers where there is a, you have to go through that mimicking your hero's kind of stage of writing where you are just, where you tell yourself it's going well, but actually all you're doing is, is kind of like just channeling, the, you know, the books and the writers that you've loved. And you have to kind of like, and I think probably that was the point at which I recognised that's what I was doing. And once you recognize it, you just kind of, you just, I just felt slightly disgusted with myself and thought, okay, that's got to go. I need to actually find what's the best way for me to tell this story. And and do you have people who read your work as you're writing, Sanjeev? Do you have editors or your agent look at your work or perhaps writing group friends? Or is it that you do all of it in complete isolation until it's done? Um, it's changing, actually. I, it was all done in complete isolation. I didn't show anyone my work until I got to the end of end of a draft and a draft that I was happy with but with China Room I did actually I showed my agent and my editor when I got to about the halfway point I kind of shared it did I yeah I did and then but then I had to start again and then I didn't show them any then I waited till I got a whole draft before I shared it again so I'm slowly getting to the point where I because I've just got such a deep relationship with both my agent and editor now you know they've been with me for over 10 years um so I do I do I'm happily share work with them once I'm happy that it's kind of at 
yeah, that, that's not going to fall apart. And sometimes I get that wrong. And I'm just starting writing my next novel now, which unusual for me. It's come. At, it usually takes me several years or a couple of years before I can start homing on and homing in on the next project. But the next idea seems to just crash into me quite quickly, and I'm a few thousand words in. And it's interesting. It's kind of like so. It's like I almost. I have to tell myself that it's going to be fine and we'll get to the end of the first draft. But experience tells me that I'm probably going to get 10,000 words in and it's going to fall apart. But it's almost like a confidence trick. I have to, you have to play on yourself. I have to play on myself. I have to tell myself, no, this time it will be different. Even though at the back of my head, I know it is going to fall apart. But if I thought that at the beginning, I don't think I'd start writing it anyway. I need to kind of go through those processes of kind of almost lying to myself, letting it fall. And then once it falls apart, starting again before I can hopefully get to get to the end of a end of a first draft. It's a strange business. This kind of like trying to tell yourself it will be fine, even though inside you probably know it won't be. <laughs> and you almost need it not to be fine for that to be part of your process. And I and I love that your process is like this because so many emerging writers think that there's one way to do it. And every single writer has their own way of doing it. You know, Stephen King will say, bum in chair, write the whole first draft that's sort of 30 to 40,000 words, write it in one kind of sitting, and then you come back and you start looking at it. Other writers, you know, show their work as they're going along, they revise as they're going along. I love that for you, that part of the process is you having to lie to yourself that everything's going to be fine and know it's not going to be fine, but that's still part of your process, which is fine because that works for you. Yeah, you're right. And when you're starting out, you're so susceptible to what other writers say and how they, you know, if a writer says they did 20 headstands in the morning before they start, you're like, you'll start doing 20 headstands in the morning. It's just, you're so, because you just, you're just looking for, it's like you're stumbling around in the dark and there's no handrails. There's no sort of like, there's no guidebook, you know, and you just have to, so you are just looking for a help where, where you can, but yeah, you have to just find the method that works for you. I think actually, I think writers groups are wonderful. I think they, that if you have that, if you can find that, supportive network um, that gives feedback that you can draw on. And, and as long as you know how to take on board feedback and how to leave feedback aside as well, I think that can be enormously helpful. I think that only because you're with a group of people that take writing seriously and perhaps outside that you want, you might not have that support network. And also because it also, it forces you to actually write, you know, perhaps write a thousand or 2000 words every, every week or so. So I think those kinds of networks are, are quite an enabling and, and what you said earlier about, you know, the level of trust you now have with your agent and your editor, which means you can now show them things. I think that's also extremely important. It's showing your work to the right people at the right time, because I feel like an idea that hasn't really been fully formed yet, a fledgling idea can kind of be extinguished if you discuss it at the wrong time with the wrong people as well. So yeah, that's that's also different for, for everybody. And I also feel like a level of confidence comes down the line. So perhaps in the beginning when you were writing, you, you know, didn't feel that confidence in your writing. And so we're a bit more reluctant to share it with people as well. But I also feel that, you know, as as you write and you get to know your writing more and your skills as a writer more, you are, you feel less freaked out about showing your work to to other people as well. Yeah, there's certainly a great amount of self-doubt that comes with with being a writer and you're never quite sure if what you're putting on the page is good enough. Um, I have to say, around the, around at the centre of that flailing self-doubt, for me anyway, there's always, there's always always been that. Even before, even you know, when I was trying to write my first, there was always there's this kernel of self-belief, which is quite a, a small, hard, kind of like stone in the centre that just says, that's kind of says no. I will write this. I will. I am good enough to write a novel, and I will. I'm good enough to write a novel that people will want to 
publish and the self doubt is all kind of flailing around that, but it can never quite get to that, that hard kernel of self belief, which I do I do have, which is which points to that idea of confidence, which is that there is a certain degree of professional confidence. I think which the more you write, the more you have. You have this confidence in your ability, and you have to confidence in your skill. Um, which also, which makes it much easier to share work with your peers or with your agent or with your editor as well. And also it just enables you to just have, you have this detector for which feedback actually makes sense for your work and which doesn't, because not all of it will will make sense. But all, usually if, if someone's making a criticism of, of your work, there might not always be, the solution they suggest might not always be the right one for you, but usually the criticism is usually valid in some sense and you just have to find the right solution, which might not be their solution. And in terms of confidence, do you think that being shortlisted for the booker helped boost your confidence as a writer? Because you sometimes speak to writers who, when they have that kind of tremendous success, it actually has the opposite effect. It kind of gives them imposter syndrome. And so they feel like anything they're going to write afterwards won't be as good. So it seems like success is this double-edged sword. And as writers, we're constantly waiting to feel you know, like we're good enough that we deserve our success or whatever. How was it for you in that regard? It was, I mean, it was wonderful. The, the prize kind of put my work into the hands of so many more readers. And that's what I'm most grateful. And also, you know, it, foreign publishers became interested. It enables me to just to, to write full time for, for a while as well, which was, which was wonderful. You know, it, it, it buys you time to write, I think, and, and space and, and, and money, I guess, which is, all, which is what I write, all the writer really really needs um i didn't feel any pressure after that to that my work would have to um, live up to a certain standard or anything i suppose because my my own standards for my work are high enough i don't really i don't think i don't think any ex, I, don't, I can't imagine any external kind of um standards would ever sort of be higher than the standards i set for myself in my work so i never felt that that kind of pressure i don't ever felt imposter syndrome i think i, I think the book was a great a sense of validation perhaps it's kind of like it's a it's a pat on the back saying you know you're doing okay carry on doing what you're doing and I don't think I saw I think I saw it in those terms and seeing it in those terms was what's most helpful for me it's just a case of kind of like just thumbs up just you know it's a long haul you know if you want to be a writer for the rest of your life it's a long haul but you're on the right track keep doing what you're doing and I think that's how I saw it and I think that's how it's been most beneficial to me you can see you, but I think you were a mathematician, are a mathematician. Yeah. Is that right? I oh, know. I studied maths. I studied maths at university. Yeah. Right. And that's a wonderful logical approach to this very creative, messy kind of process. Because something I've spoken about on the podcast before is these shifting goalposts. Because, you know, as emerging writers, we go, if I can just land an agent, I'll feel like I've been successful. And then you land an agent. And then you're like, if I could just sell my first novel, it doesn't matter what happens after that, I'll feel successful. And then you publish your first novel and then you say, well, if I can just have a bestseller and then it's if I could just get nominated for a prize. And so the goalposts just keep shifting. And so if you're chasing that, you're never going to feel truly successful. Yeah, it's bottomless really, that kind of that continuous wanting and striving. Yeah, and obviously it's not helpful. I think too many, I mean, I teach um, creative writing part-time as well now. And actually the students are are, are wonderful and, and sparky and they and they produce you know some really great material but there's always a sense that when you meet some emerging writers how actually they want to they want to be a writer rather than wanting to write and that I always find that quite surprising really and which was never something I ever I don't, I don't think I ever sort of I never really saw being a writer as a thing I just wanted to write 
And I think that's you need to get into that mental space, really. Absolutely. And and that's what it boils down to is finding a story that you feel passionate about, finding these characters you feel passionate about, letting the themes unfold from there, but really sitting down and writing because that's what you want to do as opposed to seeing the writing as a means to an end to this, you know, goal of being this writer. Yeah, you have to find that that burning bush. That's what I tell my students most that you know, you have to find that 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 thing that you just especially with your first novel, you know, you've got 20 odd years of living, you know, just find that, that thing that just really is just going to like set fire to, you know, that you just feel so important. And it might be, sometimes it's the thing that you're most sort of embarrassed by. And there is this school of thought that the thing you're most embarrassed by is, or it's when you're closest to feeling embarrassed or feeling like you're exposing yourself is when you produced your best work, which which is, which is, 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 is tricky and can be hard, but it's, it, I think it can be useful to be aware of that, that you'd have to tap into some 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 things um, in order to actually make the work come alive on alive on the page. Yeah, certainly. That was totally true for me. I mean, my first novel was about confronting my racism, being a white person raised during apartheid in South Africa and being brainwashed to be racist. And that was my lifelong shame, you know, linked to this embarrassment. And it was kind of working through that, but a very necessary cathartic process um, and pushed me to finish that novel, whereas there's other novels that I, I may not have finished. Sunjiv, we're at the end of our half an hour. It's been so wonderful chatting with you. Thanks so much for taking the time. For our listeners, get China Room. We will link it to our bookshop.org page so that you can buy it there and support indie bookstores at the same time. And that's it for today's episode. If you have any questions about writing or publishing, please email me at theshitaboutwriting at gmail.com and I'll do my best to get them answered for you. I hope you'll join us for next week's show. In the meantime, keep at it. Remember, it just takes one yes. Great news! The beta reader matchup is now open for March. Are you looking for beta readers, some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line? Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre and time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 31st of March, with the matchup emails going out on the 1st of April. The only April fools will be those who haven't signed up. For more information and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the Beta Reader Matchup tab, and please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. Hello, listeners. This is your co-host, Cece, and I'm so excited to tell you about my upcoming webinar, Writing Tension. Join me on Thursday, April 11th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time via Zoom to learn all about creating tension, conflict, and stakes in a story. This is a super popular writing webinar I offer, and it's filled with expert breakdowns, practical tips, formulas for cracking these elements, and real examples from novels that will help you dial up the tension in your story in actionable ways. And this year, I'm doing something extra. On the Monday after the webinar, we're having a live, cozy 90-minute Q&A session in which you'll get a chance to ask your questions about the webinar. That means we'll get to hang out for two days total. And if you can't attend the webinar and or the cozy Q&A session, don't worry. 
they will be recorded and shared with everyone who's registered. There are limited spots for this webinar in this new format, so if you're interested, check out the link on my Instagram page and sign up. The handle is at Agent. That's at C-E-C-E-L-Y-R-A Agent. I hope to see you there. Great news, the beta reader matchup is now open for March. Are you looking for beta readers, some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line? Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre and time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 31st of March, with the matchup emails going out on the 1st of April. The only April Fools will be those who haven't signed up. For more information and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the Beta Reader Matchup tab, and please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. Hello, listeners. This is your co-host, Cece, and I'm so excited to tell you about my upcoming webinar, Writing Tension. Join me on Thursday, April 11th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time via Zoom to learn all about creating tension, conflict, and stakes in a story. This is a super popular writing webinar I offer, and it's filled with expert breakdowns, practical tips, formulas for cracking these elements, and real examples from novels that will help you dial up the tension in your story in actionable ways. And this year, I'm doing something extra. On the Monday after the webinar, we're having a live, cozy 90-minute Q&A session in which you'll get a chance to ask your questions about the webinar. That means we'll get to hang out for two days total. And if you can't attend the webinar, and or the cozy Q&A session, don't worry. They will be recorded and shared with everyone who's registered. There are limited spots for this webinar in this new format, so if you're interested, check out the link on my Instagram page and sign up. The handle is at Agent. That's at C-E-C-E-L-Y-R-A Agent. I hope to see you there.